Jump on the steam train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Tina Tambor back for the second time. Tina's with the Cranford Report. Uh, the, she is the resource for housing data in Arizona. And today we're talking about the state of today's real estate market and potentially what we've got coming down the pike. Now, I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you will become one. Now, these days, I'm having a lot of conversations with friends, peers in the industry, talking about what's going on in their business, what challenges they're facing, this and that. If you feel like you get value in having a conversation about you know your current business and where you want to go, I'm happy to do a diagnostic call with you guys. The call will be recorded, emailed to you for reference. We're going to talk about where exactly you are in your business today, where you want your business to be, and what the challenges are you're facing right now that's stopping you from getting there. Now, it's not a free call. In fact, it's probably you know a little cost prohibitive, but you know I promise to bring as much value as possible. And at the end, you know uh, we may make a suggestion that you might be spending more money. I mean, I just want to be fully transparent here. Um, if this sounds like something that might be of value to you, go to stevetraindiagnostic.com. And this show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors to get 10% off. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. Uh, and it's a live show. Um, you know, I've got Tina here in the spotlight. We're going to be grilling her a little bit. So ask your questions, and she will be happy to answer those that she can answer. Ready? Uh-huh. All right. So, yeah. um, you know, I have the great honor, you know, first calling you a friend uh, and having the ability to, you know, uh, subscribe to the Crawford Report, mm -hmm. which, by the way, for 35 bucks a month is a stupid good deal. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for 35 bucks a month, I got the Crawford Report. So it's fascinating because, you know, like towards the end of the year, last year, we're like, okay, this is happening again, like last year or mm -hmm. the year before. And it was doing the same exact thing until about like March or April. And then it started going down. And then it started really going down. Mm -hmm. And so we hit, I think, the high, the low fours this year. We weren't fives like we were last year. I think we were mm -hmm. high threes, low fours this year. And then it started like going down. We're like, where can this possibly bottom out? And it seems like mm -hmm. we're leveling out at 100. But I don't know if we're going to stay there. It is a delicate balance. <laughs> That's yeah. what I've been calling it, a delicate balance. We uh, hit balance in August, and we hung out there. Um, so the main driver was initially the Fed funds rate, obviously, was going up. Typically, that's not something that has direct effects on mortgage rates, but this time it did have a, a direct effect. It's, you know, there's a way to get there. It's a bit of a gray association, but it's clear that there is a lot of... Uh, well, and that's an interesting thing, right? Because, like, there. historically, mm -hmm. like, before I got into real estate, mm -hmm. a long time ago, Fed rate goes up. For sure, interest rates goes up, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get into the business, you're like, oh, you realize, oh, that's actually not true. Like, yeah. the Fed rate is not tied to mortgage rates. Mortgage rates tends to tie to the 10-year rate. Yeah, bonds. But now, yeah. <laughs> there's a very <laughs> strong correlation. <laughs> yeah. So what? why is there such a strong correlation? Well, um, you know, that's probably a better question for a lender. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to talk about, because you know how I am. It's real easy for me to get off on a tangent and then be like, how did we get here? We got let's time just, for tangents today. I know, I know. But let's just talk about, real quick, the, the Cromford Market Index mm -hmm. going from that high point to this balance point. It started off when the mortgage rates went from 3.1, right at 4.4% is when we started to see the crack. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So um, when Fed rate, well, not when Fed, uh, the mortgage when rate. the mortgage rates went from three point one to four point four, that's when we started seeing like okay, yeah. there's something going right on. Right after four point four percent, we started to see a crack in our demand where mm-hmm. we should have been going up seasonally. We started to go flat. Right. So at that four point four to five point oh, that's when we started to see a curve. Okay, and then we hung out in the low fives for a while, but then the emotions around the that mortgage rate was like, this is ridiculous. We're never gonna. We're never going to survive at 5%, right? Yeah. But then it boomed like right in June. Remember, it it bolted from 5.1 to almost 6% mm-hmm. in a matter of three weeks. Yeah, That is when we saw a massive drop-off, almost 30% drop-off in contract activity, right? Mm-hmm. But then it started to come back down to 5%. And when it went back down to 5 in August, and this is important because— For like just like a week or, or for like a, like a few weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks, it was at 5%. All of a sudden, we saw a boost in demand. Like, we saw the contract activity jumped up, like, 25% from the bottoming out where we were on 4th of July weekend, frankly. Um, So we saw that boost, and that gave us this hope, like, okay, we can handle 5%. 5% is fine. 6% is too high, but 5%, we -hmm. can work with this. We were doing the 2-1 buy-downs. We were doing all of these, you know, sellers were starting to give concessions, and it was working. Right. And we got this hope. And then in another month, it went from five points to six points. And then it popped down a little bit. And then it boinged right back up to seven with all of this within a matter of two weeks. And what happened is uh, we went from a hope to despair. Right. Because then at the seven percent, our Contract activity has now dropped off another 24%. Yep. We're now hitting low points that we haven't seen since 2008. Now all of the despair headlines are coming. And so on our emotional side of things, the sellers have hit a level of despair. And in, in some cases, you know, some of our industry has reached despair some? as well. Yeah, some, because they're <laughs> like, oh, I'm not going to sell a home in four days or even 30 days now. Mm-hmm. So um, as things shift, marketing, all everything changes. This is where we've often stated that true professionals are made in markets like this. Oh, absolutely. Um, because, you know, sometimes we work a little and we make a lot. And sometimes we work a lot and make a little. And we're kind of heading into that latter stage right now. But um, at this stage, what happened is at that 5%, and this is important, we got that boost of activity. And then we had legs on it in our demand line. Because at first, they're, just, they're in the pipeline mm-hmm. waiting to close. And then they actually close. So now we're coming into the stage where we weren't replacing those deals. We're going down after that. So now we're not going to have as many in escrow. We're not going to have as many clothes going forward. So our demand information is going to shrink. And that's why at this stage we're gliding down. We're not plummeting, but we are gliding into more of a buyer's advantage. Sure. And it is possible that if these rates stay where they are, we are going to continue to glide into potentially a weak buyer market not a not a 2007 type buyer market but yeah. like definitely ne- leaning towards buyers and this is really where the opportunities lie for buyers um and they may not feel that way but if anything has happened now five percent feels like an amazing rate doesn't oh, yeah, it? <laughs> now five percent feels great so i know you can't predict what mm-hmm. the market's going to do but you you're you're very glued into like what the experts other experts are saying you're mm-hmm. following certain industry experts mm-hmm what are they predicting uh, as far as rates goes or, I mean, what the Fed's going to do, but what the rates are going to do? 
from what I understand, uh, from what I hear from people in conversations, specifically with lenders, they do have a lot more optimism about the spring. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that optimism comes from watching the inflation rates. And uh, lately, the, in, the rate of inflation, not the, not the year-over-year change, okay, the actual measure of the, there's two measures, by the way, there's the consumer price index, the CPI, and then there's another one called the PCE, the uh, personal consumption expenditure, whatever. Um, So there's two of them, but that doesn't matter right now. The only thing that matters is both of them have been flat for three months. We're waiting for the update for September, I think tomorrow or the Mm -hmm. next day. And um, because they've been flat for three months, that's a trend that we can extrapolate out now. So if nothing happens, if we can stay flat, just no rises, no falls is flat then uh, we will reach this magical 2% that apparently Powell wants before the beatings end. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) This magical 2% number could be achieved potentially by March if you're you're following the PCE index. So I think that is what gives some lenders something to kind of look for. If it goes up, bets are off. If it goes down, it'll be sooner Mm -hmm. even. So I think that's why for a number of reasons – there is more optimism about the first and second quarter than there is about the fourth quarter. So the the feds are looking at the CPI, consumer price index? No, the feds are looking at the PCE. PCE. We tend to look at the CPI, the, mm-hmm. the consumer price index. That's what a lot of journalists report on. But uh, Jerome Powell has stated more over and over again, we don't really look at that. We look at this PCE Um, the personal consumption expenditure. And the Mm -hmm. reason why they like that one better is because it's not only based off of surveys of consumers, but also surveys of businesses. And they can get much more information from businesses than they Mm -hmm. can get from consumers. And they can go back and change it as they get new information and retroactively. So that is a a much better index. What business or what what, uh, data are they getting from businesses that they're not getting from consumers? I'm just curious. Pricing. So they can Uh, tell cost of goods. Yeah. So they can tell, for instance, when you a couple of things, for one, um, it's not only the expense coming out of the consumer's pocket. Say, for instance, the cost of health care, you pay Mm -hmm. your your deductible. That's the max you pay out of your pocket. But your company might pay more. Right. So that takes into account all of the expenses of not only the consumer, but the expenses of a business as well. And say, for instance, as a consumer, you are still buying apples, but now you're not buying organic apples at $5 an apple. <laughs> you're buying pesticide apples <laughs> for like a dollar instead, yeah. right? So um, the, the PCE will track substitutions better. They will track uh, all kinds of other things. And they also weight housing differently. So housing on the consumer price index, mm-hmm. the CPI, is weighted at 42%. So it's a big deal. If housing comes down, then it will have a major effect on the CPI. Mm-hmm. But it's only about, I think, 22% in the PCE, and healthcare is a much larger percentage. Um, they have a totally different setup on what weights they use in the PCE. I would argue that's a really backwards way of looking at things. Uh, what? That they weight how the medical? Uh, that they weight, medical. Uh, not that so much that they weight medical more so much as they're weighting real estate less. Because mm-hmm. if you look at your regular spending expenses Mm -hmm. a good chunk of your paycheck goes towards your mortgage Mm -hmm. or your rent right but you're thinking as a consumer though right if you're thinking as a business owner now Mm -hmm. and you have employees Mm -hmm. your health care expenses have gone up 
Right. So um, I think it's good to have to to not turn a blind eye to the other expense of healthcare, which is also in the core. Mm -hmm. Say oftentimes when you look at the overall index, the food and gas can be so erratic that you know it causes some sure you know too big of a shift. So that's why they often look at core and to not consider the increased cost of healthcare over the years as, as a weight on inflation is. Probably, oh, you know, I think that absolutely it should yeah. be a consideration. It's, a, it's not as big of a weight on the CPI. Uh, mm -hmm. The healthcare is like a small little piece, but it's much more active. And, and no, that's the thing. You know, lately Powell has been really targeting housing. All right. He's that's got like a thing. thing. He's got a big axe to grind against real estate. No, I think it's a math problem for him. I yeah. think with all these guys, it's, this is a math problem. They're mm -hmm. looking at these calculations and where can we make the biggest bang? And I think they thought, okay, housing, that's where we're going to go. They only have but so many tools that they can use, one, right? They have one tool. They have one tool. <laughs> <laughs> they have one arrow. <laughs> and so that's and so he's stated we're going after housing. This mm. is what we're trying to do. The issue with that, and that's why he's getting a lot of um, criticism right now for overcorrecting, mm -hmm. is that the housing market takes a while to right. respond to anything you try to do. It's not like the stock market. It's a lagging indicator. And so what they're saying in a lot of the uh, articles coming out is that he is relying too much on final prices, you know, rents and all that. And oh, he's so not he's waiting, waiting to long see, enough. Uh, so he's not he's waiting on not just lagging indicators, but extremely lagging indicators. Housing is an extremely lagging indicator. Yeah. And so um, my analogy that I use for lagging indicators um or, or industries that are slow to respond is imagine you're sitting in front of us clear motionless pond mm -hmm. and you want to create some waves and you have a wonderful arm and you just throw this big old rock out there and you're waiting for the wave and you don't see the wave mm -hmm. so you throw another rock out there wait for a wave there's no wave and then you throw another rock out there and finally you see a wave but that's not from your third rock mm -hmm. <laughs> that's from your first rock right and so by the time he sees all of the things he's looking for it's going to be wave one, yay, wave two, oh, wave three, ah, <laughs> yeah. you know? and that's when you find out that you've overcorrected. So he, in Phoenix anyway, he got what he was looking for. Once mm -hmm. we hit 5%, we actually went to a balanced state. If he had stopped throwing rocks at that point, he probably right. would have eventually gotten the statistics in his numbers that he was looking for. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate, right? Because I think maybe for him, a way to get this information because, you know, he's super high up, right? Yeah. He's in the ivory towers that we can't talk to, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but maybe if he talked to the owners of, I don't know, Fidelity or the <laughs> owners of, I don't know, um, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever's doing the most loans in this country right now. Because, mm. like, you and I don't do loans with this stupid big box. But I, I think they still <laughs> probably do a lot of mortgages. You might want to get to know them over the next... <laughs> I know we uh, there people are still mad at them over the, a lot yeah. of things that were going on during the foreclosure crisis for a while. Right. So there's still like some grudges going on. But I'd say that uh, if anybody is going to be able to respond in lending mm -hmm. with new programs, it's going to be the well, big be banks. Yeah. But if there's a way he could just, you know, hang out, uh, just, you know, pick up the phone, call the CEO of Bank of America and the CEO of like Fidelity National, mm -hmm. whatever their company is, mm -hmm. and just ask them what they're experiencing. Because you and I know a lot of people that are getting laid off, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like yeah. I, I get to talk to, uh, you know, people that uh, do really well in title. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people that, you know, you look at, was, um, I've been comparing this environment to um, back in college in the weed out class, you know, look to your left, look to your right, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. One of you is not going to be here, <laughs> and maybe two of you won't be here. Mm. 
right? Well, my feeling on the lending side of things is, mm -hmm. you know, obviously they've had a lot of layoffs. Um, you can only lay off but so many people until you find you have to get some loans done. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that I well, I would expect to see some response in the lending things that they're doing, like maybe some loosening up. Some loosening yeah. up could make big waves in bringing some buyers back in. I mean, there's Dodd-Frank. There's a lot of stuff that I, not my superpower. That's mm. not my expertise. But little things like allowing sellers to contribute more to closing costs, for instance, um, especially on a 3% down loan. I understand there's some restrictions based on Dodd-Frank laws and so on about that. But that would open up a lot of things. You know, even just um, if, if FHA could loosen up on condo guidelines mm. even. Um, all kinds of things that could open up for more affordable housing hmm? for more affordable housing because yeah especially in cities um and especially in phoenix the condo a lot of these condo complexes are shut out from first-time home buyers because they can't get funding right on them because of too many investors or whatever or the condition and things like that so i would say that i think the lenders are most likely going to start trying to come up with new programs, mm -hmm. uh, anything that will help ease the sting of these higher interest rates yeah. and help people get qualified. Um, I, you know, hear a lot about adjustable rate mortgages and so on. Oh my God, please don't. I know. Right. <laughs> so, um, but again, like what I, where I was going to was like, if he would just talk to the owners of the big banks mm -hmm. and the big title companies and just kind of hear what's going on. Cause they are the uh, leading indicators. Right, they're tracking open escrows, right? Mm -hmm. They're tracking the... Well, they have only a part of... So they don't have the entire market. So remember, well, they, they the only track market. people getting loans. They don't have the open... They don't have the entire market, but they mm -hmm. have um, data that can be closely correlated, right? I mean... Yeah, you can definitely, on in terms of new loan applications, you yeah. can... Um, if you separate out the refinancing side of things mm -hmm. and look at just, you know, loans on purchases... Uh, but also remember that there are some people who don't necessarily have to get a loan, but they use loans when money's cheap, and then they don't use loans when money's expensive. So right. you've got your your luxury area where they can take it or leave it, mm -hmm. and right now they're leaving it, so that would, you know, show up in your numbers. So there's there's definitely, I would say, the under 300 market right now is seeing yeah. a pretty drastic decline in price because those buyers are the most sensitive on interest rates you also have just the emotional side of seven percent some people just flat out don't want to pay that <laughs> they, they, <don't. laughs> they just don't flat well, out don't want to do it it's been i mean we've had historic low numbers for so long um but i guess where i was going with that is that if you would talk to these people mm -hmm. he doesn't have to wait for the lagging indicators to see what's going to happen to prices he can know <laughs> next um, week <laughs> i would say that he could. I mean, but that's strictly on the demand side. Mm -hmm. So it only gives him one side of the equation if he looks at that. I think that's personally true. he should be talking to us. You know, <laughs> um, the people who like, for instance, um, you need to know what your supply was, historically mm -hmm. speaking. So our indexes at the Cromford Report are historically, um, I guess, more relevant now because yeah. when you start looking at like what Powell said, he wants to bring supply and demand more in line with each other into a more of a balanced market so that prices rise at a more reasonable rate. That was literally what he said. Mm -hmm. But the problem is the only analytic he's affecting is demand. Yeah. So until he knows what supply is, he doesn't really know if they are actually in balance, even if he talks to the lenders. 
So that's why he should talk to us. Right. And we could tell him that he historically just spent $35 in Phoenix, a month from that's right, $35 a month. <laughs> no, actually, he can't actually get a subscription. Uh, we could get special permission from the MLS if he wants it. it. But the thing is that, um, that we could have told him that supply and demand came into alignment in August. Mm -hmm. And at least in greater Phoenix, we are only one market of an entire nation. So he's got to collect data on the entire nation. So the... the question is, when is what we're seeing in our marketplace going to factor in? And remember, too, when when the indexes talk about housing, they're not talking about the cost of a home or a mortgage. They're talking about the cost of rent. Right. You know? So let's look at um, right now we see like Phoenix got hammered hard. Like it seemed like overnight. Mm -hmm. um, Nevada's been hit pretty hard. Uh, it appears Idaho and California have been affected greatly. Mm hmm. Well, all my friends in the Midwest, they're like, what are you guys talking about over there? Are you guys crazy? <laughs> Do you know why we're so much more volatile than the rest of the country? Um, well, for one, I believe we were one of the, one of the first places for the large iBuyers to mm -hmm. come out. So the Open Doors offer pad Zillow. Uh, Phoenix was one of the hot spots for that corporate flip model that was being tested out before it went out to all these other places in the nation. And I don't know that they really went into the Midwest a whole lot. Yeah. Um, they were a disruptor, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. And the thing about that is whenever you have a, a corporate entity coming in, spending other people's money mm -hmm. on flips, which is the arguably the riskiest part of our market is short term holds. Mm -hmm. So they're going to take a lot of money, a lot of other people's money and spend it on short term holds. Needless to say, they were probably taking on way more risk than the normal flip investor would be taking right. on. Because the flip investor is getting their own loan, they're spending their own money, they're going to be more conservative. They are in a risky business, but they are going to be on top of it, right? You we get a large corporation. A yeah. And the large corporations, just by nature, they don't move fast enough and make changes fast enough to adapt. Right. And so what happened is the iBuyers in general, we, we know Zillow, they mm -hmm. backed out. Um, Offerpad's actually not too bad. They're, they're one of the more conservative ones. But Open Door is the largest one. And what ended up happening for both Open Door and Offerpad is they started to accumulate inventory very quickly and they weren't selling as many. So if you are an entity and you need to have more money coming in than going out, mm -hmm. right? you're going to need to now unload these properties. So what we look for in terms of prices coming down is how many sellers have to sell at whatever price they can sell at. Yeah. Because there are plenty of sellers out there that are not desperate to sell. They don't they have choices. They can sell or not sell. And we're seeing them right now actively. Mm -hmm. I guess not actively, but they're not selling. That's right. They're, that's, you're exactly right. Many people are choosing not to sell, which is a self-regulating factor for yeah. supply, which is what we're counting on. We did not have that in 2005, six and seven nope. because we had uh, much different circumstances. But mm -hmm. this time around, many sellers are like, I don't have to sell under these circumstances. I won't. Yeah, I'm going to choose not to play. Right, exactly. But Open Door doesn't have a choice to not play. Yeah. Like, the people who don't have a choice to not play, those are the ones who are going to be driving the prices down. So in areas like, say, for instance, um, five to 600,000 in Greater Phoenix, 14% of those sales last month were Open Door sales. If you were to take 14%, 14% of all sales in the five to 600 range. So that price point, actually, you can actually point to that and say, 
If you were to look at March, or, or, I'm sorry, May, our peak to today, the drop was about six point something percent. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say two, six point two percent. If you take Open Door and OfferPad out of the equation, it was only four percent. So that's a pretty big effect that those what we would call you know distressed sellers in a way have that effect on the overall marketplace. The question is how much of that inventory is there? In 2008 and nine, it was a lot. We had 57,000 listings in the MLS. I remember MLS. showing houses with 57,000 right? listings. <laughs> right, exactly. This time around, we have 19,000 listings, not mm -hmm. quite the same, but 1,500 of them are open door. That's a pretty hefty bite out of that whole thing. Yeah. So if open door, and I know I'm picking on them right now, but say for instance, just That's using- That's strongly encouraged. Just say, we, let's just take them as an example, okay? Mm -hmm. If they decided to list all of their homes for a dollar, all right? And they would sell all in one month or a week or whatever. They would sell it. All of those prices would come into our, our average sale prices and you'd see a massive drop off. But because there would be no more of that inventory, we would get back to a regular market of regular sellers. Does yeah. that make sense? So um, we are probably going to get through this period in the fourth quarter where your serious sellers only are going to be in a way, pulling those prices down, but at some point we're gonna get through that type of inventory. Yeah, so we gotta just kind of clear just this little uh, speed bump. Yeah. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, like, kind of like driving over, you know, a body, but <laughs> once we clear the speed bump. <laughs> right, and well, exactly, and basically the speed bump is anybody who bought this year and has to sell this year. Mm -hmm. um, most people who bought this year are not necessarily in dire need of selling right, right now. And they have the opportunity to wait and maybe even rent their home out for a while and then re try again in the spring or whatever. Because come springtime, just seasonally, the fourth quarter is the slowest time of the year anyway for sellers. Yeah. And then to add 7% onto it, it's just going to make that you know, even more painful. But come the first quarter, um, we're going to have Super Bowl, we're going to have golf and horses and cars and baseball and all that. It'll be tourist. like it never happened. Yeah, well, I mean, it's we're still, I don't expect to see like this miraculous recovery. It's just yeah. that at that point, that's when our buyer season starts and sellers in general have a different mindset going into the spring than they do coming in tired after the marathon of 2022 in the fourth quarter. Absolutely, especially I think maybe this, this year might be a little bit heavier. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I've read a lot of, and I'm not sure if this is accurate, so I'd like to get your perspective on mm -hmm. this. Uh, one thing I'm hearing from... Um, and the peers that kind of saw this coming and I thought they were like lunatics, like whatever, you know, you're just a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> kind of saw this coming, right? And they're saying like Fed cannot slow down until jobs are lost. And and the reason why is that the only way to curb mm -hmm. inflation is to get people to stop spending money. Mm -hmm. And the best way to get people to stop spending money is make them broke. Is make them broke. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, is that is that something that you're reading as well? Like, you know, we need to mm -hmm. we need more people's jobs to be sacrificed. Um, I have read those, uh, those opinions. Um, but then, you know, that's, that's when I start coming into just greater Phoenix mm -hmm. and we look at exactly how greater Phoenix has diversified their employment base. How, uh, if you were to go to any presentation for the greater Phoenix economic council, you can see there is still a lot of business that is moving here internationally mm -hmm. and nationally, uh, many from California and New York. So nationally speaking, I could see employment, unemployment um, getting a little bit worse. But the question is, 
will it be worse or mitigated here? And yeah. I believe, and many of the economists here in Greater Phoenix believe that the diversity that we have seen through the, a lot of the good work of GPAC um, means that when we lose jobs in real estate, in lending, in tourism, or anything like that because of, of economic woes, there are other businesses that are actually looking for that type of talent to ease the, ease the blow of it, if that makes any difference. Because back in the day, during the bubble and the crash, all of our jobs were construction, we have one industry. real estate, tourism, <laughs> low-end call centers. You know, there was nowhere to go when you when you ran out of business as a realtor. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Uh, for those that were listening, what is GPEC? GPEC, Greater Phoenix Economic Council. They are essentially uh, an independent entity here that they are the salespeople for our city. They they go to other companies and say, you should bring your company here and bring your all your jobs here. So if there is one particular group of people that I, I, I would to target to say stop bringing Californians here like that's the group <laughs> that's Chris Camacho he yeah, has so and now, now mind you he they've done a phenomenal job and I would say many of the companies coming from California yeah. are uh, probably not necessarily of the California mindset so yeah. they are right. for-profit entities so okay got it <laughs> uh, so I was thinking this morning you know um, about What's going on today? Because, you know, you got a chance, you spoke, you presented at Asria, which was a phenomenal mm -hmm. presentation. Some of the stuff we're mm -hmm. talking about here, you shared a little mm -hmm. bit over there. And so we've, I started in this business 2007, right? Probably not the best time to get, become a licensed realtor. Um, it was great. But I remember, like, I can't remember what years exactly. Maybe it was 2010, 2013, sometime around there. Mm -hmm. So I, I meet with you, you're a homeowner, and I get a listing agreement, right? Mm -hmm. I get my 6% commission, right? Mm-hmm. And then I throw it on the market, and it sells the first weekend. Nice. What typically happens? What was the, what was the homeowner's response? Oh, they usually think that they priced it too low. Yeah. You <laughs> sold it too fast. What did you do to earn your commission? Right, yeah. Yeah, you, you priced it too mm -hmm. low. You didn't mm -hmm. earn that commission, this and that. Right, right, yeah. And today... <laughs> if you don't sell in the first weekend, what is the feedback? The feedback is clearly you're not advertising it enough. <laughs> Why aren't you working hard enough, right? Like, you, what do you mean it takes 60 to 90 days for a house to sell? Yeah. What yeah. are you going to do for the next 60 to 90 days? Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of fascinating. Yes. This 180 we've experienced. Yes. Yeah. And it has, uh, frankly, been the fastest 180 we've ever seen, historically speaking. Yeah. Um, in Greater Phoenix. But, you know, this is also the first time in my career because I was 11 years old in the 80s. This is the, this is the first time in our all of our careers that we've seen interest rates spike to this degree this mm -hmm. quickly. So I don't think anybody could have potentially seen this coming. Um, and the effects of it were, you know, by our standards, immediate. Maybe mm -hmm. not by Powell's standards. Yeah, maybe not by his standards. <laughs> you know, but. Yeah. but for us, it was pretty strong. Yeah, because, I mean, although I did experience, you know, 2001, we didn't have to sell, you know, mm -hmm. um, with uh, between 9-11 and the dot-com bus. Like, didn't really mm -hmm. affect us because we weren't in the real estate industry. Mm -hmm. Right? Right, right. Well, yeah, and the dot-coms, a lot of that didn't even affect housing in Greater Phoenix because we were still growing mm -hmm. as a city, and we are also still growing, which means that if you look at just the growth of our labor force, just those numbers, not let alone population, just the labor force growth and the, the growth of more companies coming in, you can tell our city's not done growing. Our demand for houses is there. It's being suppressed right now mm -hmm. because of the times. But when 
the rates come back down eventually, because in every recession, we've seen rates come down every single recession. So, uh, and sharply, oftentimes. So the fact is that most people do believe that rates will eventually come down, maybe sooner than some people think. Mm -hmm. But when that does happen, we've already seen demand pop up yeah. from that. Yeah, we saw it for a, a blip mm -hmm. in And August. as long as our employment is still pretty decent, you'll most likely see a, a big boost from that because even in that 5% time, we saw a big enough response to that that we know they're there. Yeah. We know they're there. It's just a matter of getting through this time. Yeah. Uh, so I have another question for you, mm -hmm. and you might hurt some, hurt some feelings with this one. Oh. Who's worse? Oh, no. <laughs> the COVID realtor with no experience. Okay. Or the traumatized realtors like myself who made it through the last <laughs> recession. Who's responding worse in this environment? Oh, um, I think they're both equally. <laughs> they're equally stunned. Yeah. Um, I would say the new agents coming in might actually have an advantage only you because— think so? Yeah, only because they don't have a set expectation of what this market is supposed to be like. Like the two years, uh, we got people still going through their five stages of grief, mm -hmm. <laughs> mourning the loss of that type of market, even those who hated it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and even those realtors who have, say, say, have had their license since 2015, they have this set expectation of what the market should be like. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're coming in new, like you said, you came in 2007, which by many standards would be a horrible time. Yeah. But yet, look at you. You're still here. You like cut your teeth on a, on a tough market. Right. So many agents coming in today, they just get in there. They're excited. They're optimistic. That feeds into the clients. They're going to be optimistic as well. And um, and you might find that these people do even even better yeah possibly or not or not we I don't mean, know i think we should probably if there's a way that you guys can pull this data right like mm -hmm. you know who's better the realtor has been licensed since 2020 or the realtor has been licensed before 2007 <laughs> um as far as negotiation right as far as like list price to sales uh sales price to original listing price mm -hmm. i'd be curious to see this statistic because oh okay right because we have uh mm -hmm. matthew potter right he's here with us over at real and he's working with you know, tricon mm -hmm. and he is just steamrolling these agents and getting What's Tricon? Tricon is the uh, biggest fund, I think, that's still buying oh, right now. okay, got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's like, they're just kind of like rolling over. So, and he's, mm -hmm. in his experience, it's those that have been licensed for less than two years where, you know, mm -hmm. this hasn't sold in a week. Yes. Um, so I would say that the agents that have only ever seen the last two years probably don't have the experience of all of the different marketing tools and mm. patience of having a listing for longer than a week or two or now a month and um and maybe not might not have that negotiations because for we've been selling for over list price for so long yeah. they haven't had to deal with negotiations under list price all you had to say was like is that the best offer you can make yeah right <laughs> <laughs> right exactly yeah. they're like yeah, you're gonna have to go higher than that but yeah but now they're looking at okay now you got to prep your seller for we're gonna have two price reductions probably mm. You're, then you're going to get below, you know, right now we're running at about 2 to 3% below your last list price mm -hmm. as your final price. And you're most likely going to have a concession with the median concession right now being $6,000. Yeah. So, so realistically, we're going to suffer 90% of our final list price, not the mm -hmm. original list price. So probably. 2 to 3% less than our yeah. final list price. And probably six, maybe 7000 or more mm -hmm. in concessions. And pretty much if you're still listed by, Feb, uh, by December, expect to have a big 
wave of lowball offers <laughs> <laughs> offering to close in a week yeah. for way lo less than you want. All right. So. so if you're an investor, December is the time. Uh, well, yeah, I would say um, for those kind of entities that do like to have, you know, fourth quarter results in terms of sales. So you're looking at builders. Uh, you might be looking at iBuyers as well that they're, I would expect them to have a little bit of a push towards the end of the year to try to get as many properties sold as they can. So you may see some incentives come out. Got it. Uh, so right now from the audience, uh, we got R. Sturble. Gas prices are going to make it seem like there is inflation. What are your thoughts on that? What about gas prices? What? Gas prices might make it seem like there is, there is still inflation. So how much mm -hmm. is inflation calculated into the PCE? Um, so you mean gas prices? Mm-hmm. Uh, gas prices are, uh, which is transportation, because gas is literally in everything. But transportation, if that's what we're going to focus on, is a lesser weight on the PCE than it is on the CPI. Mm -hmm. But again, if you look at core, which is often what the feds are looking at is core, they take gas and food out to keep the volatility down. Seems kind of backwards. Or it seems counterintuitive. Um, well, they look at both of them. But right. right now, the overall, even with gas and food in there, um, it hasn't moved for three months. So yeah. that's uh, so even if prices for homes or rents for home come down and gas goes up, as long as that index is leveling off, then yeah. we're in good shape right now. Got it. Uh, and then Dustin uh, Rule shares that there are iBuyers all over the Midwest. So. Mm -hmm. I didn't right. know that. I knew they were in a lot of markets. I didn't think they'd be in the Midwest. I thought they were in like the giant metros. Um, they are. Well, this, here's the thing. They started in Phoenix. Many of them did um, way back in 2015. Mm -hmm. So we've had them probably the longest. Yeah. So, yeah. And so we've, we have intimate experiences with the eye buying. I've got theories as to why people, why, why they all like to start in Phoenix. I'm curious to hear what your theories are. Um, well, I think that... I'm not exactly sure other than um, with Phoenix, the analytics are a little bit easier here yeah. for one. We have one MLS uh, instead of multiple MLSs. We have one very large county that has multiple cities with one county recorder's office. That's not normal. Uh, many, okay. many areas have multiple county recorders. And so getting analytics on housing in some of these cities um, for both supply and demand is a level 10 difficulty here a little easier to uh, maneuver yeah we did try you know we, we've expanded to Albuquerque New Mexico we did expand mm -hmm. to Oklahoma City mm -hmm. and what we found was that all those other markets their title or the ones that we expanded into the title process is a freaking nightmare mm. um, you know like to mm -hmm. get to figure out who owns the property is yeah. like months sometimes whereas mm -hmm. here uh, if I call my title department, mm -hmm. I can within 24 hours, so long as it's not a crazy title, mm -hmm. know who's on title. We actually have a award-winning county recorder's office, yeah. nationally renowned recorder's office for the county of Maricopa. So yeah. um, I feel extremely blessed for that as an analyst because they record more information than most recorders do. Mm -hmm. And uh, for us, that was made us... Uh, very easily able to identify back during the foreclosure crisis how many properties were actually owned by banks. You know, remember that shadow inventory yeah. type thing. So we we have a way better uh, time of trying to filter out, you know, certain types of buyers and owners yeah. here. I do like that you did the finger quotes for the shadow inventory. <laughs> yeah, there was. I mean, there was just these constant things, but the shadow inventory, right? Yeah, yeah. that never happened. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Josue on YouTube wants to know, is there a link to your service? Like how does someone uh, find out how to use your services? So the Cromford Report is uh, we have a data license with the MLS. So here's the thing. We have we have a an obligation of that data license to only give subscriptions to our service to their members. So their real estate agent members specifically. Mm-hmm. We do have a side piece, Cromford Public, that's based off a of public record that's not linked to the MLS data license that um, – a normal individual, like any individual, can get a subscription to that. It is $240 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to find the data is a little bit lagging because it's public record and we have to go through a lot of uh, cleanups and coding and stuff before we release it. So right now it's up through August. But you will get all kinds of uh, good information on flips there because those happen often outside of the MLS, um, new homes, uh, 55 plus communities, uh, distressed properties, all of that will be in Cromford Public. It'll just be lagging a little bit. The MLS stuff they have to get through you right. as a as a realtor. Got it. So uh, I want to answer some more questions from the audience. But before we do mm-hmm. that, let's go ahead and uh, roll a quick 30 second break. Okay. Hey, Steve Trang here. A lot of you have been asking me for sales management training. I didn't feel quite right teaching it, but I found the perfect guy to teach it for us. So Ren, tell us about it. Steve, we're going to be introducing some really intense fundamentals and philosophy behind the management of sales teams. Uh, Have a ton of experience building really high performance sales teams and really taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that management practices and theories from all over the place and brought them together to create a unique whole person perspective that drives low performers to high performers and elite caliber salespeople into sales champions. And couldn't be more excited to partner with you on it and the Sales Disruptors brand. For sure. So go to disruptors.com success and we'll see you at the next event. Hey, Steve Trang here. <laughs> All right. So um, again, guys, please ask your questions. Uh, so, you know, one thing that we've seen uh, with Open Door and, you know, we keep picking on them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fine that came down. Okay. For Open Door. So, mm-hmm. what was that fine that came down for Open Door? Are you talking about the fine from their 2018 to 19? Yeah, the, the FTC or whatever. I want to say it was like 63 million dollars, but mm-hmm. I'm, it was a while ago, and so I'm not sure if my memory holds. But mm-hmm. it was somewhere around there. Um, a healthy amount of money for some people. Yes, <laughs> but after you've lost a billion dollars, I'm not so sure. Or something like that. I, I, you know, so forgive me if I got the number wrong. Sure. But that class action lawsuit from back then, those activities, they, they didn't have anything to do with the most recent activity. It had everything to do with the fact that they were advertising in 2018 and 19 that if you were a seller and you sold to them, you would make more than if you sold on the MLS. Mm-hmm. And apparently that was proven that that was not necessarily true in all cases. Now, it was totally true in um, probably the last year or so. But but back then, that type of advertising is what they got uh, dinged for. Right. Um, And then um, they just got another lawsuit. Um, It was a class action lawsuit. What what do you know about that? Um, I'm not sure. I I heard some rumblings, but I I think that just came out in the last day or so. Mm -hmm. So I'm not as up to speed on it but is that the one that was uh put out by their investors yeah so basically what they're saying is that um open door appears have lost money on 42 percent of its transactions in august of 2022 
oh. which is not surprising. Actually, I do have the numbers in Phoenix to support that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, what are those numbers? Yeah, maybe I would maybe say, the, this uh, class um, action suit should reach out to you. Because we just updated our August numbers, and uh, for Open Door specifically, there they the difference between their acquisition price and their sale price. Their acquisition price was, uh, I want to say, four ninety six, and their sale price was four sixty six. It's a thirty thousand dollar gap. So on average. So there was yeah. a delta of thirty thousand um, dollars. Yeah, pretty much. That's a that's a pretty that's the first time we'd ever seen Open Doors analytics cross like that. They'd gotten close in the last quarter of last year, yeah. but uh, that was that was the first time we've seen it. You know how many dramatic, houses that was? Not off the top of my head. I know right now they only have a, just under three hundred in escrow yeah. at this point, and last month they had as many as four hundred in escrow just for Greater Phoenix. Yeah, but. Um, but they had 1,800 listings active at the time. So. Let's see. We have let's do some quick math here. I apologize, everyone. I'm completely violating all my <laughs> stereotypes here. Oh. Uh, so 300 <laughs> times 30,000. Well, $9 million loss. Um, well, I would go 400 because they had as many as 400. I don't know their exact closings because uh, that number I... I just saw the August number like a day or two ago, yeah. so I haven't memorized the stats yet. So $12 million for one month. I'm not going to be quoted on that, but we'll <laughs> let you have your estimate. I'll, yeah. I'll get the math done and tell you whether you're not you're right. But in yeah. general, um, that's uh, that's a big gap for, for uh, a flip yeah. company. And we've stated over and over again that the flip model doesn't work very well in balanced markets. Mm -hmm. That was a huge flag. But as, as we said before, large corporations often do not respond quick enough to market shifts yeah. as they should. And I think that's where Open Door got caught. So I know you can't predict the future. <laughs> How do you think things are going to look? I mean, so we got Q4. We're in the middle of Q4. We're not middle. We're beginning yeah. of Q4. Mm -hmm. uh, how are things looking right now so far in October? Um, right now, so far in October, we are seeing a definite response to the 7%, mm -hmm. which just hit within the last few weeks, right? So we've been hanging around there. We are seeing uh, our contract activity is still on the decline. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that we are most likely going to be sliding into a buyer's market. Yeah. Typically speaking, you know, seasonally adjusted buyer's market, which means it's not just about, hey, this is the fourth quarter. It's usually down a little bit. We're going to be down more. So than normal, mm -hmm. um, and some sellers will decide not to sell in this market, and that'll adjust our supply most likely. But the sellers who remain, which will, that'll be a, you know the one beacon of hope for the ones that remain is that they won't have any you know excess you know a competition. Right. But I do believe that the ones who do have to sell in the fourth quarter under these circumstances are going to find themselves trying to uh, give concessions, buying down interest rates, having more days on market. Uh, it's not a bad idea if you have the ability to do so, to try out, say, October, try it out for a month see, up until Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. If you don't get anything but you tested the market out, um, take it off the market and then try again in the spring if you have the ability to do that. Yeah. I know I've asked you this question before, so I apologize I asked this again. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain what seasonally adjusted means? Seasonally adjusted. <laughs> well, for us on the index, we look at what is our... When we look at demand, it's everything that's under contract. What's um, UCB, which is status, under mm -hmm. contract taking backups, you know, con everything that's contingent, everything that's under contract plus sold comes into our demand line. And we have demand data going all the way back to the year 2000. 
And then we do the same thing on our active counts. We look at how much is active, what are we used to seeing active at this time of year, going all the way back, you know, 20 years and adjusting for the size of our, our city and all of that stuff. So when we say seasonally adjusted, if you see demand is 20% below normal, we have that normal line. And now we can say what's normal for this month, we are 20% below that. Got Does it. that make sense? Yeah. So that's a seasonally adjusted. Got it. Because I always see that in the news and I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? <laughs> um, yeah. So for the people that are listening or watching right now, I mean, what advice would you give, you know, if you were either wholesaling or flipping, what advice would you give that audience? Um, condition is going to be very important, but maybe not over improving mm-hmm. a home for the for the surrounding areas. Some people might be going for a home that's clean slightly outdated but still clean and in their budget yeah. right so cleanliness you know uh curb appeal all of that if you have a fixer upper home this is the dump your junk season is over <laughs> there's yeah. no more dump your junk season yeah. so those homes won't even see a contract yeah. but just make sure your home is clean uh relatively you know updated not super hideous smells good all of that stuff uh, that's going to be important i would not test price Mm-hmm. Um, don't most people are not even going off of comps now you can't go off of comps you have to go off of what's active yeah and at this stage of the game we're at about uh, we're at about February pricing mm-hmm. so if you do have comps where by the time December runs around you might be looking at January comps for your your property but for the most part you're gonna want to be taking off um, from if you've got a May comp you're gonna be coming in below those comps or below even August comps at this stage. So we've been dropping at about 2% per month so far. Mm-hmm. So you're going to want to pay, be very attuned to what's currently active as to where you're pricing your home. Yeah, I remember when you were here last, um, it was maybe three, four months ago, and you were saying like you uh, anticipate mm-hmm. that December to December will be flat. Possibly zero, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which basically eliminates all of the appreciation that was achieved from January through May. Yeah. Um, and that only really affects people who purchased from, you know, this year. Yeah. Essentially. So um, here's another interesting stat. Um, 66% of all b- homes in the MLS that are not new build have been owned by somebody for at least two years or longer. So while this is very sad and it does affect a lot of the people who bought this year, most of those people are not selling mm-hmm. unless you're flipping like Open Door or somebody like that. Um, many of the sellers have still 40% equity from the time they bought it. They have the means to supplement buyers and to, to shoulder the costs of, sort yeah. of selling right now. Got it. Uh, so uh, Lado on YouTube wants to know, you know, how is the commercial space doing during this time? Are you paying attention to that? Uh, I am nowhere close to commercial. I am strictly residential housing. That's Got my it. superpower. Got it. <laughs> Um, but I will tell you this commercial usually follows residential by about two years. We have seen that. Yeah. We have seen that. Um, I'm curious though, like how, uh, the, at least, you know, a lot of the funds and multifamily they're buying based off of what they can borrow at. Mm-hmm. Right. And if what they can borrow at increases, um, mm-hmm. then the value of the property has to go down because they can't qualify mm-hmm. as much or, the, the, the loan doesn't go as far towards purchasing power. Mm-hmm. So I'll be curious yeah. to see what happens. But Yeah, I, that, um, I do have, if you want to interview somebody in the commercial space, mm-hmm. I can re- refer you to someone. Cool. Um, 
And then anything else, you know, we were kind of joking, like we were traumatized in the last recession. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you're in the business, you've been in the business longer than I have. So were mm-hmm. you involved after, um, was it the 9-11? Were, mm-hmm. we, were we affected badly by 9-11 as a real estate market? No. Um, I don't remember. I, I was in, uh, I had been in the, in the industry by 2001. I mm. had been in it since 1993. So... Yeah. About, you know, a decent amount of time. And I would say that it was almost in a, on price for us, no effect. No effect. No effect for price. So is there anything else for people that are uh, watching this that got to, that you've seen that happened in t- 2007 through 2011, how that might affect things today any takeaways from that time period that might translate today um the one common denominator that i can find between the past and today is wall street anytime (laughs) wall street gets involved in residential housing they screw it up okay it's kind of like you're having a party everybody's having a good time and then that one crazy friend comes with Mm -hmm. tequila (laughs) And they start every now and then the loud music comes in and then the police come. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially Wall Street comes in. They start spending a lot of money. They start influencing certain aspects. Back then it was it was mortgages they were investing in, having the big party there. Mm-hmm. This time around, they're having the big party with long term holds and flips and all of that. What, what happens is when they start affecting price to where price goes up too much too fast, you get the eyes of the government looking at that going dead right? Mm-hmm. So first Wall Street screws it up, and then the government screws it up even more. So yeah. it's like the police and coming the in and shutting down the party. <laughs> so it's Wall Street, mm-hmm. then the government, and then yeah. the Fed. <laughs> yeah. it's the Federal right. Reserve. So, so the 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 party from 2005 through 2007 was met with Dodd Frank, mm-hmm. and um, and then now this last party has been met with rising interest rates and the Fed funds rate. Yeah. So, got it. Um, Dustin rule here again saying that uh, they love the Sunbelt state so um, as long as it fits ni- 1980 and newer then those buyers are buying a lot of wants to know are home builders canceling so that's an interesting question I'm not sure yeah. exactly what he means so you, yeah. you want to ex- let me take just, a about it? if I can let's just ad- address that iBuyer comment mm-hmm. when I say iBuyers I'm not talking about institutional buyers buy and hold mm-hmm. I just want to make that very clear iBuyer came out as um, as a word for internet buyer, and that was when Open Door came onto the scene. Yep. And so when I say iBuyer, I'm talking about corporations that are buying and flipping. I'm not talking about institutions, which would make sense. Some people would think that yeah. institutional buyers that are doing long-term holds, uh, that is not um, what I'm referring to. So Got just it. for the record. Now, what was the second question? Uh, home builders. Um, mm-hmm. are you, how are you seeing this uh, play out with home builders? Home builders actually, um, they came, they were the ones that started coming out with the two one buy downs right off the bat, right around July, and um, just recently. And again, I have another analyst. If you ever want to inter- interview somebody on uh, new homes who specializes in that, but uh, R.L. Brown, Jim Daniel, I talk with him about once a month, and he said he was starting to see builders were actually doing pretty well with their incentives. So. Even though we're in the areas that they're in, they're considered buyer markets like Maricopa, the Buckeye, those areas, those are generally pretty slow right now. The builders actually have been winning 
the war a bit mm -hmm. on that, where they have been selling more than they've been permitting mm -hmm. in the recent months. So I think many builders are doing okay, especially those builders that have acquired their land at a cheaper rate. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I believe most of them will come out of this. You know, they're just hanging tight. Yeah. So as far as we were talking about October, so interest rates being high, mm -hmm. definitely affecting demand. Yes. Do we think that's going to affect the entire quarter? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, is there any good reason why interest rates are go down, mortgage rates are go down in the next qu well, quarter? Well, I wish I could predict mortgage rates. That would be so awesome. Um, so that's why I've that been would watching. Be really helpful. Uh, it would be so helpful, right? <laughs> if we see any kind of improvement in the inflation rate, you know, potentially. Mm -hmm. But I, I think at this point, um, with not knowing what the Fed's going to do and the emotional impact that each one of these are announcements every time he's made an announcement he's made good on it so now when he says it, it's like oh Probably this is happen. it another you know yeah but uh i'd say that until we see any measurable change i'm going to wait for september's inflation rate to come out and then we'll see how october's inflation rate comes out if we see any kind of measurable impact on that measure i think hopefully we'll start to see an easing up but right now i can't predict interest rates they're so they're so volatile. It makes yeah. it difficult to do anything past a four to six week prediction on where the market's going. And right so, now it's, it's only going slow. So as an analyst, mm -hmm. the things you're paying attention to mm -hmm. are PCE. Yes. Because that's the one that Jerome's paying attention to. Yes. I'm watching whatever Jerome's looking at. Yeah. So Jerome's <laughs> looking at PCE. So you're yeah. looking at PCE mm -hmm. and that's going to give you an indication to what's potentially going to happen with the rates potentially of what he's going to do yeah. and then emotionally um, <laughs> what, what the rest of us are going to do. Yeah. But I'm also watching interest rates every day. Got it. What, um, let's say he goes, follows through, because he's saying 75 bips, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 75 bips right now. Some people are speculating maybe 50 and then 25 next time, right? That's yeah, I think he's going to find the law of diminishing returns on that because I think he had the biggest bang once he went over 5% into the 6% range, mm -hmm. uh, now everything after that, you might knock a few more extra people off, but the majority of people that are going to be knocked out have been knocked out. Yeah. So. so you don't think that, that interest rates going 8% is, is going to make things any worse? No, it's just, it's already, <laughs> it's already, it's already, it's already <laughs> bad. <laughs> just saying, yeah. uh, I think um, if anything, you're going to see lenders coming out. I think somebody even said, hey, maybe we'll see a three, two, one buy down, yeah. you know, um, all kinds of tools. And what you might actually see is more creativity coming out in the marketplace where you have these sellers that if you got a 3% loan and you have to sell right now and rates are 8% or 9% or 10 or whatever it is, you're probably going to see more wraps coming in. You're going to yeah. see more uh, people trying to assume loans or do things that, you know, if lenders don't get on board with the assumption mm -hmm. side of things, then you might start seeing some creativity going on there. Right. So if you follow us through with 75 bips, <laughs> damage has already been done. Can't mm -hmm. really do that that much more damage. So yeah. Q1, we're going to see, like, how do you think that's going to, how, how's the market going to look in Q1? Well, like I said, it's very difficult at this stage to look at anything beyond what my data tells me now, which mm -hmm. tells us we're probably going to be moving into, um, gliding into a more buyer friendly balance mm -hmm. part and then possibly into a buyer's market but i don't expect it to last that long and i don't expect it to be plummeting like we saw in 2007 we just don't have the inventory for that yeah so i do believe that we're going to get through 
what we would call our distressed sellers, if you will, which will be the people who took on the most risk and got caught mm-hmm. holding a house, right? Once you get through that inventory and get back to our normal inventory, I think we will see some stabilization, at the very least some stabilization in the first quarter. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think at some point in 2022, we were on pace to have a record year as far as transaction volume. Um, and I think 2021 was the, was the record. 2021, I think we did. We hit uh, of the record for volume of sales, yeah. yeah. And so for us in the real estate industry, mm-hmm. right, general public, they're like, they might look at it as like, what's wrong with these crazy people in the real estate industry? Like, what are they <laughs> panicking about, right? Because mm-hmm. for them, a percent up, percent down, it's like, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you don't have to sell, it's like, whatever. Mm-hmm. For us, I kind of equate us to like sharks, where if we're not swimming, we're dying. Right, and that is that is exactly, so when we start talking about panic or despair, there's a big difference between the experience of a seller and a buyer in this market, which mm-hmm. is balance. So it's like, okay, so I'm on the market a little bit longer. I don't get what I want, but I'm still coming out of it with money. Mm-hmm. The buyers are like, I have all these homes to choose from. I mean, I have a higher interest rate. That's terrible. But if you can still buy and you expect to refinance, then your experience as a buyer and seller is not really that terrible, yeah. you know, so you're not selling in four days. In fact, you might be getting better service because escrows yeah. are like not busy at all. Exactly. But the thing about balance is this, that we're in balance because we are 20% below normal in demand, but we are also 20% below normal in supply. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the least number of new listings coming on the market now that we've seen going way past 2014 now, we have a trickle of new listings coming in, which right. means you have a bunch of board agents mm-hmm. and we have fewer and fewer new contracts being written every week. That just means you have 42,000 realtors in the MLS and most of them are bored mm-hmm. and they're not making any money. So oh, exactly. Bored or panicking. <laughs> or panicking or, you know, or going and focusing on other streams of income, mm-hmm. let's just say. So the thing is that you're going to have the, the industry suffers. That's why we're seeing layoffs. Right. Um, the layoffs in the industry is basically we built, because we had a record number of sales, we built this empire of people to facilitate that level of sales. And now that we're not seeing that level, you've got excess people. And that's why we're saying the industry in Phoenix, there are other industries that are growing while real estate is shrinking right now to adjust to this new one. Now what's will happen is this is a, you could, you could argue that this is a, a disruption. This interest rate thing is a disruption. And then when that disruption is released, we will go back to where we would have been anyway. Mm-hmm. And whoever's left in the industry <laughs> will probably get pummeled with well, all of that excess uh, And demand. I've been saying, you know, like my message has recently been like, you know, this is the time to survive. Mm-hmm. And in Q1, Q2, I was saying Q1. Now I'm saying Q1 or Q2. Mm-hmm. Right? Q1 or Q2 would be the time to thrive. Because that's mm-hmm. when all the competition will be gone. Right? Because again, this is the weed out mm-hmm. class. This is the looking to your left, looking to your right. And, mm-hmm. you know, one or two guys aren't going to be here. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes people go off, they, they do something else, and they become wonderful referral sources for the people who are you right. know, still here. And then they keep they might keep their license active and collect referral fees as, as they're on whatever, whatever path they're on. So um, what do you think? We can't predict prices mm-hmm. uh, because... Well, we can a little bit. They're going to go down. You think they're going to go down? <laughs> Yeah, in the next so. four to six weeks, yes. Oh, in the next four to six weeks. Yeah, yeah, 2023, yeah. we don't know. Oh, no, we can't. Yeah, right. That's too far out. Do we have any way to predict what volume is going to be like, transaction volume is going to be like? Well, um, that's when we get into seasonality. Mm-hmm. So typically speaking, transactional volume is, is at its lowest period in, in the fourth quarter. Come the first quarter, again, that's when we 
sellers get hope because that's our buyer season. That's not the nation's buyer season. That's Greater Phoenix's buyer season. Starts in January. Uh, you know, you get the golf tournament. You're going to have the Super Bowl. You're going to get the traffic. And so from about January through May is the, the peak buyer season. So I expect yeah. to see transaction volume will start to, to rise then. Will it be anything like we've experienced the last couple of years? No. I don't expect another 2020. Think hopefully not. <laughs> Stay well, people. No viruses, please. Yeah. Uh, so no, not another 2020, which was a total anomaly year mm. anyway. Um, 2021 was, here's the big thing. 2021 was fueled by Wall Street investors because we went below normal affordability for the population in June of last year, but yet our prices continued to rise because we had all of this competition with, you know, Open Doors, Zillow at the time, and they were selling to Wall Street firms that were, you know, buy and hold. So mm -hmm. they were fueling the last part. If they don't come back in that kind of vigor, you're not going to see the same 2021 yep. in 2023. Got it. Let's see. Um so Mike Jay is asking, you were saying that in some industries are growing in the Phoenix market. What industries are growing in the Phoenix market? Semiconductors. Semicondu well, we have Taiwan Semiconductor coming here. Mm -hmm. um, they've got a bajillion cranes up in North Phoenix. The ripple effect of Taiwan Semiconductor, the largest semiconductor company in the world coming here, is that all of their suppliers are coming as well. So you have a lot of high tech coming in. They're filtering in at that I-17 and 101 in the North Valley. Mm -hmm. They're also coming in and filling in in the three, the gap between the 303 and the 101 out by um, Goodyear, a guy out off the I-10. So we're seeing all of these locates, if you will. That's what the GPEC calls them, locates. Mm -hmm. All these new corporations that are just dotting up and down the I-10 the I and along that I-17 in, re, in relation to that. So. We've got semiconductors. We also have healthcare. We've been expanding here in, and a lot of uh, biotech has been coming here. So all of these high-paying, high-talent industries coming yeah. is is creating a nice balance for us. Yeah, and uh, so you know, Tina and I, we've been in a mastermind uh, forever. You know, Matt Merritt's mastermind. Mm -hmm. and we've always talked about this, and forever it seemed like the only other industry we had was memory care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. We so. were getting a lot of 55 plus communities there for yeah. a while. So yeah. we're expanding even further. Well, and you know, to that point, our demographics are changing. Mm -hmm. So we used to be the retirement place. And so when you're a place for people to retire, you don't see a lot of income growth because they're all fixed, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, you don't have high birth rates that way either. Now yeah. we're getting uh, younger talent in terms of labor force coming in, which means that you're, you're people you're getting people in the middle of their lives, like, you know, families coming in and a younger demographic. And that uh, that definitely changes things. And we're going to be getting a more diverse demographic in that, you know, you're getting Taiwan Semiconductor is going to be bringing more diversity into those areas. So yeah. just think about what Intel did with Chandler and, and Gilbert and Awatuki, then Taiwan Semiconductor is probably going to have the same effect on like Anthem and uh, North Phoenix, Peoria, and even going out towards Wickenburg. Yeah, you know, for the longest time, when people were talking about asking about the Phoenix market, I kind of like, well, mm -hmm. you know, like Chandler and Gilbert, you know, it's kind of like the engineering area. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Scottsdale's kind of like the financial area. Mm-hmm. And it's medical. Not, yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's no longer true. Now it's all going to have its mm -hmm. uh, semiconductor as well. Yeah. Phoenix is becoming, and you know, aside from water issues, we don't really have a whole lot of national di disasters. So. Um, one thing, uh, 
I've re- I was reading articles, you know, two, three years ago, how they were saying, like, one day, Sun, uh, Sun City is going to be a disaster, right? <laughs> we're talking oh, about all- yes, I remember that. That was the, um, the silver tsunami, I yes. think is what they called it. Yeah. So I guess is it safe to say we, were not, we don't have to worry about the silver tsunami anymore with Taiwan Semiconductor coming no, in? No, I don't think we need to worry about uh, our population declining and nobody being there to buy Sun City homes when they pa- all pass away. Um, that was kind of that whole thing where... You know, the, those homes were going to be vacant because everybody's going to die and there's going to be no birth rate or whatever. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be an issue for us in the short term. All right. So no more concerns about silver tsunami. Not not for today. Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> a lot of what factors precede an emerging market? Oh, so when you're talking about emerging markets, I'm assuming you're talking about the up and coming areas where you can get in early and ride that appreciation. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're talking about? I would imagine. So one example of that would have been like South Scottsdale, if you remember, during the foreclosure crisis, nobody wanted to live there, but all of a sudden that became the place to go. Mm-hmm. And so I do look at about five factors to see if there are any areas that are affordable, but in have all of the factors, if you will, of being in the next five to 10 years, a yep. really good place. One of, So one of the factors is... Um, close to an employment center, close to an entertainment district, close to open space, like a park or like a, any kind of, you know, preserve area, centrally located, close to a freeway, so you can get to wherever you need to go within about 30 minutes, mm-hmm. and close to the airport. Those are my five things that I look for. And so if I were to pick any area that fits all of those right now, I would say South Phoenix. Yeah. Um, with South Mountain there, you can see Levine has been going crazy. He's been doing quite well during this period. Well, with the 202 mm-hmm. wrapping all the way around. Yeah, there's new development in there. You can get a home that would cost well over a million in Scottsdale for seven hundred, eight hundred thousand down there. Yeah, I mean, South Phoenix has always been surprising to me. It just like yeah. it has all those things. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have the freeway. It wasn't until the freeway broke yeah. through and actually got completed that they started to see some explosions down there. Um, if I were to pick another area, um, there's going to be areas around that uh, Taiwan Semiconductor that, you know, if they're still affordable now. <laughs> and um, another one I might look at that kind of has some of it would be Sunny Slope, but I think they're kind of last on the list for right now. But again, those would be like five, ten year plans. So if you guys haven't are familiar with Sunny Slope, the way I would look at it is like Watch Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah, Um, but you know it does. They're central. They're kind of they're they have a they have a preserve. They're kind of close to the airport. But yeah, I think they have a ways to go. So, but those are the things I look at. So right now I'm focusing on um, the gentrification, if you will, of the South Phoenix areas. Yeah, Uh, what surprised you in the last few months with everything this this this, uh, hysteria that we've had? What surprised you the most? Oh gosh. I think I will say I don't know that I thought rates would go all the way up to 7%. Mm-hmm. That was that was and so quickly yeah. to see him go up it's one thing to go from 3 to 6. I was like, okay, well, if they just stay here for a bit. I don't think I once they went down to 5 to see them go to 7 within literally less than 2 months that mm-hmm. was that was surprising to me. Do you think we can get to 9? Mm. Cuz I have people ask me this guy. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, would, anything I want to could say no. Happen. Anything could happen at this stage. Yeah. Um, but whether or not 9% is going to have any more of a negative effect that 7% had, um, uh, probably not. But remember, though, that there are still plenty of people out there that have enormous down payments that 
those extra points might throw some extra dollars on the end, but that's not something they can't afford. Yeah. Uh, it's just mentally they don't like it. And so you have to, they have to feel pretty confident that those rates will come down and they'll be able to refinance. Um, we had the rates going up even before the Fed announcement in June, right? Like you look at the crop rate index, even like March, it was starting to bend and the um, interest rates were starting to creep up. They were creeping up in January, actually. Yeah. What, mm -hmm. was, what, what caused that? Uh, well, like I said, it has something to do with bonds. And so one of the things that you can look at is the credit availability index that's put out by the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association. Mm -hmm. I watched that one as well. Um, those are the that's basically who's buying the loans uh, from people. You mm -hmm. know, um, one thing to know about that is it's been getting tighter. And once it gets looser, then you can start to see a little more experience, you know, loosening up. Yeah. But right now, credit is really tight. And one of the reasons is and you would expect that you know at seven percent you think let's buy that mortgage right mm -hmm. that sounds like an amazing return blah 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 but the fact is that these investors that buy those mortgages make most of their money in the first three years and there's no prepayment penalties now like right. they were back then so if they believe that that mortgage is going to be refinanced within the first three years of that loan they lose money and so even at seven percent these mortgages aren't very attractive. Yeah. And so I'm thinking if they think mortgage rates are going to come down, then I think I will expect them to come down because yeah. these are people who are buying these things. So I would be watching that to see if uh, we see any kind of loosening up in the credit mortgage credit um, index. The one good thing from the interest rates going up the way it has this year mm -hmm. is that I've, I'm finally right. You know, <laughs> since 2007, I've been saying like, I don't know how long interest rates are going to stay this low. It's going to go up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so funny because uh, we often joke about, you know, all of the analysts that have been claiming crash since 2014. Mm -hmm. It's going to crash. Era, and finally, you know, we're having prices go down. They're like, we told you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we made all this money in six years. Yeah. But, so they're finally or I'm, I'm finally right after all yeah. these years. So that's that's a small there victory. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I should have listened to you. Back then. <laughs> um, so. Wrapping up here, um, is there any message you want to leave the listeners with? Something for them to think about and noodle on as we're kind of, you know, experiencing this market? Well, uh, depending on, you know, I'm not entirely sure who all your your audience is. If I'm an investor mm -hmm. and I'm predominantly investors. and I am hanging on to my cash right now, accumulating it, <laughs> waiting for the depths of despair for the mm -hmm. seller so I can go in. The typically speaking, the best time to buy is at the beginning of a seller's market. Mm -hmm. The best time to sell is towards the end of one, but not all the way at the end because then it kind of sucks at the end. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that if I'm waiting right now, I'm waiting for the Cromford Market Index to take a turn up mm -hmm. for probably a couple of measures to see if we are now on the way up out of this balance or out of a buyer's market, wherever it is, I would be waiting until that line takes a curve. Um, in the right direction, because that will be the beginning of our next round of appreciation. Got it. So pay attention to the Crawford Index. Yeah, Crawford Index. And if it starts going up. Back into so, a seller's market, the beginning, beginning of another seller market, yeah. that's the so time. So as, as the demand exceeds supply, that is the time. Mm -hmm. Got it. And that's our leading indicator. Leading so indicator. So you won't see it re reflected in price for about usually three to six months after. Yep. Um, so uh, guys, if you got value today, please... Like, subscribe, share, comment. I always ask for this because it helps us reach more people. 
Uh, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do that? They have to hunt me down like an animal, really. I mean, how long did it take you guys to get me on this show? I uh, think there were um, lots of efforts. Uh, we had to track you down at Asriot, actually. I know. You had to grab me on the way out. Um, I'm not the, I'm going to be the first to say I'm not the easiest person to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. um, I would say if they somebody really wants to ask me a question, go through you. Because yeah. um, I'm, I'm overloaded on email and on text. And I mean, Facebook, it's a, it's a little much for me. So if that, Email is fine as long mm -hmm. as just don't don't think I'm blowing you off if you don't get a response right away. But yeah, um, I'd say go that route. Got it. Do you feel brave to share your email, or they're gonna no. have to find it? All right. So if you really want <laughs> it to is find online, you can find it online. I'm so gonna make you really go work for it. Though. You gotta look her up online. <laughs> it's just Tina at CrawfordReport.com. There you go. That's it. Awesome. Thank you guys all for watching. <laughs> Thank you, Tina. Pleasure My as pleasure. always. <laughs> See you guys all next week.